Well, hello there and welcome to Happy Place. I'm Fern Cotton and this is the place where we can celebrate the chaos of real life. Today I'm meeting Dr Pippa Grange. Life isn't a self-improvement project. It's like, you know, how wonderful would it be if we took time to go left or right rather than up? If we allowed descent as well as ascent? You know, if we could spend time learning something other than something that would improve us, you know, that wasn't for any gain, wasn't for anything that would make you better. Pippa is a psychologist. She played a pivotal role in the England football team's 2018 World Cup run. That was the time the team reached the semi-finals. And she talks a lot about the concept of expanding ourselves rather than improving ourselves, which I love. And now she's written a book called Fear Less. Oh, this book is bloody brilliant. Now, Pippa came round to my house at the end of last year for a coffee and such a lovely chat centering around our fears. She also kindly bought me a hand-knitted pink woolen hat and, um, you know, like a scarf, but it's not a scarf because it's all joined up, like a tubular thing. I can't think what that's called. Anyway, it's cosy. It's worked wonders throughout the winter. What a kind, thoughtful soul. Oh, snood. Is it a snood? I think it's a snood. Anyway, back to the point. Um, We were talking all about fear. Now, not necessarily obvious fears like that of perhaps public speaking or heights, but our root fears as humans. Maybe fear of abandonment, of rejection, of being dismissed, ultimately of not being good enough. Those are the things that drive us to make or not make so many decisions in life. And I really hope hearing Pippa talk makes you think about how capable and how bloody powerful you are. If only you could let go of that fear that might be holding you back. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, here we go again. This is the show. Dr. Pippa Grange, thank you so much for being on Happy Place. I'm thrilled to have you on. Thank you for having me. It's been a long time coming up. It has. I'm really, really pleased to be with you. Yeah, it's been a long time coming. And I've been loving following your work. Like this book, it seems very, very relevant today because the element of fear is kind of everywhere at the moment in the world on top of the individual fears that we carry along with us from circumstance and history and whatever so we're all dealing with this subject at the moment your book is called fear less and the opening sentence I was like right I'm in I I am in you ask the reader this question or you you pose this statement you say what if I told you your life was run by fear and I was like oh my god I kind of know it is but how much of it is and it kind of led me to really 
dissect my decision making. And I think we all probably underestimate how much fear is driving us. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, you often hear that uh, expression, be fearless. And um, for me, it's, you know, you can't be. You Well, for one thing, you know, it's not it's not um, psychologically possible to be fearless because we need some of it. But the problem is we've we just don't have our hand on the, the volume control yeah. and there's just too much of it. And, you know, it's it's more pervasive in our lives than than we realize. It's sneaky and it shows up disguised in different ways. And I just really feel that we don't quite understand the space it's got at the table when it comes to, you know, um, the presence in our life. And it's a big deal. It's a big deal. And we all have it. It's just some people have got their their hand on the controls and they can turn it down to a level that's useful and not overtaking. So I guess the first step is to notice that it's there because some of us, I guess... We'll blame either circumstance or things we've experienced in the past as the things that are stopping us in life. Whereas actually if we notice, oh my God, this is fear running the show. That's the first part of the the sort of solution, I guess. Yeah, if uh, and that's that's sort of the method that I talk about in the book that there's, you know, um, first you have to see it. And it's not just as simple as seeing it where it's clearly apparent that you're fearful about something. You know, you're about to go and present or you're on stage or you're doing your driving test or waiting for a, a test result or something. You know, it's obvious that you're afraid and understandably. But it's more about understanding all the other ways that it shows up and particularly the thing that I'm really interested in is the way it shows up sneakily as not good enough fear you know and that that pervasive underlying sort of sense of I'm not quite enough and the fear the chronic fear that goes with that you know that sometimes we describe as low self-esteem or or you know um, a lack of worth but it's for me it all comes back to this same root which is the fear of not being good enough and I think it's, um, you know, it's very present and, and we don't necessarily see it as that when we're looking at what's going on in our lives. Being a performance psychologist, you've worked with huge sports stars and managers and CEOs of companies and people from all walks of life. And I wonder if you've noticed that there's one type of fear that's more prevalent than others. And is that the fear of failing? Yeah, I, I mean, it, it, you know, there are, there are two um, sort of major fears or, or um ultimate fears that we have the fear of death is one uh, like not existing anymore like you know annihilation and the other one is the fear of rejection basically um and you know uh, or abandonment in its original form and in our modern lives that kind of shows up as rejection and um you know being dismissed it shows up as failing because failing isn't a problem but failing and feeling like you were rejected is the problem so that's a really big difference failing for me is actually just part of winning failing is part of succeeding failing is part of life you know almost everything we do you fail 50 million times before you succeed but we have this narrative this story that goes along with that that there's a rejection or a shame that's associated with it that's the problem so what we have to do is learn to use failure or reframe it yeah, uh, reframe it exactly. You know, so we we have a story or an idea about pretty much everything that happens to us in life psychologically, and we have a story about failure that is that it's wrong, it's bad, 
And it's just a part of the effort. It's just a part of the journey to get to where you're going if it's a goal-oriented thing. And if it's not a goal-oriented thing, like parenting, for example, ah! <laughs> you know, yes. like life every day is full of failure yeah. around it. But just accepting what it actually is and noticing where in your story there is a lot of that judgment and a lot of that kind of negative feeling around failing that leads to that sort of central element of you not being good enough because that's the error and that's the repeated recycled error that keeps us down. It's a bad habit. Yeah, it's a bad habit. And, and you say in the book that, you know, when we're facing fears, obviously struggle and failure and messiness is part and parcel of facing a fear. And actually, we have to notice that all of those things that feel uncomfortable, mess and failure should have as much of a place in our heart as success should. Why is that? Well, you know, the, the truth of it, Fern, is that life is chaotic. You know, we, we have a, we've talked ourselves into um, the fact that life should be linear and orderly and we should go from A to B to C and it look pretty neat. And we feel good when things are neat. You know, I, I feel better when my cushions are tidy before oh, I go to bed. Oh, my God, you are talking my language. <laughs> like I have to have... Every, everything is in a place. Otherwise, I feel like my world is ending. Right. But, you know, that's a that control mechanism just feels good in a minute. But it's not actually how life is. And there's this sort of middle ground, which is us accepting and what I talk about as surrendering also to the to the way it is. And that doesn't mean giving up or um, not having goals or not wanting to tidy your cushions. What it means is just having a little bit more willingness to be in the reality of the chaos of life. When we try and neaten it up and tidy it up and put a bow around it, you know, actually we put all of our energy into this cherished outcome, this way we think it should be. And the energy all goes out of the moment and out of now and out of the experience of life. But all of life, all of ecology, which is where I get most of my lessons from, is chaotic. It, it's There's a lot more randomness than we like to admit. And the last couple of years have really shown us that, right? Completely. And, you know, and like you just said, if, if we look to nature... It's all chaos. It can be rather beautiful, but even how, I guess, a flower grows, there is such a huge element of chaos in the sort of struggle for the shoot to come through the earth, which is, you know, a process in itself. And then I guess when we move into the time of year we're in now, autumn to winter, I can look in the garden now and I can see all the leaves are dropping off, all the petals are falling on the floor. That is quite visually chaos. You know, everything is sort of giving up, letting go. But we are rallying against that in our own lives. We don't want that bit of surrender or the bit where we do fall apart. We want to you know, and I know when I'm doing this I'm, and I do get controlling, I'm trying to hold everything in and I'm quite tense and I'm trying to create this sort of, I don't know, I'm bringing it all in rather than just like letting all my petals fall off and going with it. But we just don't, we don't mimic nature. We don't look to be inspired by nature. That's where we seem to be missing a trick. Well, it's because we've forgotten that we're part of nature yes. <laughs> for a start off. But, you know, I mean, what happens next after the leaves fall off, right? And and they're scattered all over the garden, right? For If you, if you just think about that example, when the leaves are on the floor and scattered all over the garden, they're pro providing shelter and compost for what's growing underneath. Uh, the branches are ready for the winter and then what comes next is spring. It's always cyclical. So even though it's chaos, there's a patterning yes. that we don't trust. You know, and I think if we can just trust our patterning a bit more.
that gets into some really exciting possibilities. It, it seems like that's happening now more so than ever for very obvious reasons that man is quite literally control well, think that we have some control over all of this with how we distribute food for example you know we rally against seasons completely and we'll just import yeah. things from another country or you know we're, we're trying to do that in so many areas of life that we've completely forgotten that cycles even exist you know if you wanted to you could fly right now to somewhere sunny and ditch winter altogether and we sort of forget to honor that there are those cycles in place and that we have that within ourselves and like you say we're looking for some sort of linear ascent or the the notion now of self-improvement where there is some sort of path we're meant to be following to become the perfect person rather than having these cycles of our own individual peaks and troughs and and learnings and then growing and expansion we've just totally like disregarded that altogether Mm -hmm. yeah life isn't a self-improvement project nope (laughs) you know and I I talk in the book about this concept of wayfinding it's like you know how wonderful would it be if we took time to go left or right rather than up if we allowed descent as well as ascent You know, if we could spend time learning something other than something that would improve us or exploring something that other than something that would improve us, you know, that wasn't for any gain, wasn't for anything that would make you better, Mm. but it was for um, the pleasure of learning or it was for, you know, exploration or joy. You know, the simplicity of that is really important, but it's not the way we've constructed our you know, fairly economised and industrialised society. And actually what's happened is we've allowed our minds to become economised and industrialised as well. And we feel that we're on this constant forward track to better. Oh, I I know that trap so well. Like, I do it all the time and I can easily fall into that feeling that I'm not doing well enough or I'm not reaching my full potential, which is elusive at the best. You know, it, it doesn't exist But we're all in this sort of hamster wheel of thinking we're getting somewhere rather than, like you say, expansion usually comes from trying something new. And also looking at that moment of surrender. I mean, I certainly didn't choose a moment of surrender. There's no way I would. I'm not that sort of person. I'm constantly trying to hold my shit together. But out of zero options, I hit the deck. And, you know, that was it. But then all of this stuff that I'm doing now with my work feels right. And I feel like there's... There's way more learning to be done in this area that I'm in now. And I never would have gone off on this path of my own accord. It was sort of forced on me. And I guess, you know, reading your book and talking to you now, I'm realising we have more choice to do that more often than we think we do. And if I just, you know, if we just rewind a little bit, I don't want to overlook our fear of rejection Is that fear of rejection always founded in a place of history that historically we would have had to have been part of a tribe to survive, to be safe, to be able to migrate in a group, to find food? Are we still working in that very archaic way cognitively? Like we haven't really moved on much since those times. It's not just a conditioning thing. It's how we're wired we're what, I mean, we're a, so, we're a social animal, you know, um, we're, we're designed to be in a tribe, in a pack, in a community in its modern context. Um, we work against that a lot, actually, in the way that we live. But 
the sort of neurological, uh, psychological understanding of how important it is for our thriving, for our real deep wellness and flourishing to be connected to another person. I personally think it's central. I think it's more important than almost anything we can do on self is what we find in the richness of exchange with and connection to and belonging with other people. You know, what is uh, referred to in the in the South African term as Ubuntu, I am because you are. Mm. That's We deeply understand that psychologically deep, archaic, evolutionary psychology lets us know that. So it's not okay when we feel that's at risk. It's not okay with us. On top of that, we're socially conditioned for it. But we've made that so small, you know, and I think some of the secrets or or opportunities, let's say, for our better flourishing is in that reconnection in community and with each other. We're social animals, but we're not actually relational animals. You know, it's we have to make an effort to deeply connect, to look each other in the eye and to have a present conversation rather than a quick, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. Yeah, how's the kids? Great, move on. You know, we do that all of the time and we actually skip the relational part and just do the social part. So my invitation would be to go deeper into the relational part. And what we've done in our contemporary lives is we've made that into this tiny group called a nuclear family, mum, dad, kids, people who are closest to you. And that's the only place where we have that relational intimacy. That word has become synonymous with partnerships rather than deep friendships and community exchanges. You know, it doesn't have to just look like that. What if we could expand our sense of intimacy to be further into our community? Mm, we, we need it. And I think sometimes we're so scared of rejection that we actually create blocks on purpose so that we can't be rejected because we're almost rejecting ourselves first. And there are so many cases where you can probably look at your own life, but also people you know where they reject intimacy because they're so scared of being rejected, mm. which is such a funny coping mechanism that some of us have. And and it's and it's then it's self-fulfilling, right? Yeah. So, you know, you never actually get the feeling of a moment of friendship or kindness or exchange with somebody in your community or somebody in your wider circle. You don't get to experience that because you sabotage the chance. So, you know, the, when I talk about courage um, as an antidote um, to some of that sort of fear-filled life, you know, courage might look like extending yourself a little bit further to be uh, open, to be friendlier, to not look away quite so quick from the person who says hi. Mm. You know, it's just those tiny moments of courage. I'm a big believer in smallness, actually, the power of ordinariness and smallness in our well-being rather than grandness and huge sweeping changes and this new year I'm going to do it differently. You know, it's in the small exchanges and the little moments where you took care of somebody else or you allowed someone else to take care of you where you expected them that that you expected that maybe there would be some tone of rejection in that. Mm. Wait a little bit longer. I I definitely struggle with that one and I find it excruciating. I mean, almost impossible to ask someone for help because I'm already waiting for the resentment. Like I can smell it. And it's got me in a lot of trouble over the years because I have ended up either feeling very isolated or I've become resentful, weirdly, because no one is helping me because I'm not putting myself out there. It's not even on my agenda. So people think, oh, she's fine. She doesn't need any help. And I turn on myself. It's such a... 
a strange thing. And, and you know, like the, the first line in your book, it all comes from a place of fear that, I, that I'm going to be rejected and people will resent me. So I don't even, you know, think about that as an option for myself. So it, it's so interesting when you start to unpick all of this and you can see that fear is stitched into all these areas of life without realizing it it's so you know because I could look at a situation in my life and go straight to oh well no one helps me that's just how it is no one helps me they all think that I'm doing okay and what do I need help with and I don't look at the fear driving that thought process it's so fascinating mom deserves better than a drugstore card this mother's day surprise her with a truly special personalized card from moonpig Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com I want to talk a little bit more about your own interest in this area and what your relationship was like with fear prior to this being now what you excel at and help hundreds and thousands of people with every single day. I know that you had a difficult upbringing, that there was a lot of fear around your home life there. What did, what was your experience of fear at that point in your life? I mean, that that sort of period of my life was, you know, as you say, talk about chaos. <laughs> Um, you know, that was not good chaos. And I was yo- I was very young. I was 16 by the time I left home when all of that sort of happened. And then, you know, subsequent sort of chapters of it have unfolded since. But fear for me was at that point in time, I was in a constant survival mode, you know, so I was making quick, impulsive, rash decisions, sometimes about coping, sometimes about getting the hell out of there, you know, and I was making adolescent decisions. And I I think when you haven't had the opportunity to really heal from those things. For a lot of people, we kind of still make adolescent decisions all through life as if we're just in this waiting room for when it gets better. You know, and my relationship with fear then was um, it was an instant trigger warning sign, but it ruled me. It ruled how I engaged in relationships, particularly partnerships. It ruled how um, I expected to be treated. I thought everything would be a conditional exchange. You know, there would be there would be something dependent on the exchange, as you were just saying before. But I've grown up a bit and grown out of that a bit. Um, you know, and and I've done that because I've been able to have the very privileged experience of real deep relationships where I let go and I was able to just show up as me without my mask on. And it took ages, really, it took ages to do that. But it has only been relationships and the depth of relationships and being, this is just Pip, this is just me, that's allowed it to have its right place in my life. And and I, of course, I still get fearful. You know, if something goes wrong, uh, a person in my family's had a very recent mental health issue again, a, 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 you know, it's kind of devastating mental health issue. And it's, I get the fear back, a whoosh, like a wave, a rush of it. But I'm able to stay in what it is today, rather than just dwell in what it might be and give all of my precious energy away to the dreaded possibilities rather than 
how am I soothing myself and how am I best useful? I can't be in exchange with somebody if I'm in the future worried all the time. Uh, you know, and I know that's easier said than done, but I think that's really the missing piece for us. If you deeply desire to help, then you must be in exchange. And an exchange can't be one way. Thinking about what you were saying before about how hard it is for you to accept help, you know, that's not an exchange. That's you in a power position gifting love or care. And if really you want to share care and if you want to exchange at a soul level, then you have to be willing to just be even in that. You know, and that's the journey to kind of say, how will I not presume that I'm the taker or the giver, but I'm in exchange? Mm, that is a, such a lovely way of thinking about it. And I know you just said there, it's easier said than done, but you have done it. And you had some seriously extreme challenges growing up, growing up in a, um, uh, you know, your mum was a single mum and she had boyfriends that were, you know, not ideal at the time that caused more chaos. Later down the line, you sadly lost your brother to suicide. Some some seriously scary moments that you've had to overcome. And everything you've just talked about there with your reframing of fear and unexpected incidents in life, I guess the, the thing you have to do is take yourself out of the place of being a victim. So how did you navigate that? How did that 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 switch in your cognitive mind take place where you thought I can't sit in the victim anymore that this is all happening to me and I'm I'm out of control how did you realize your own agency over the circumstances and how you reacted to them some of it I think you know therapy um, and the therapy was about helping to reframe as you say like who am I in this story and I talk about that a lot in the book, like you're a character in a story, but the pen is actually in your hand. So recognizing and realizing that. But what I want to say, it's really important alongside that, because that can sound really sort of, um, I don't want that to sound sort of like it's just, it's hard work, right? But the most important thing is the small committed actions. And that's why I think we start with smallness and ordinariness, you know. So if you can find one relationship who's not your best friend since you were five, you know, or your husband, you know, or somebody deeply close to you. If you can find one relationship and go that bit further into your own authenticity. And, you know, I will say as well, that's really hard to do if you're in the public eye mm. because people have an impression of you and people have a, a standard that they expect of you and a, a need of you, actually. You know, how can you go that one bit further of being you? in a relationship, not a, not a social media relationship, but one human real relationship. That's, I think, some of the stuff that mattered most in my development. And my development continues. You know, as I said, life isn't a performance and we don't actually get there. And it's not broken. You know, it's not actually, I, I really rail against this idea of sort of fix us because we're not, we're not a commodity to fix. We're a species, we're a sort of a ever-evolving, ever-changing, rich, wonderful, mysterious creature, you know, and it's so important to remember that because if you find yourself on some kind of self-help fix journey, wow, that's draining. I, w I want to delve further into this this subject matter of, of connecting on a very human level with other people and the importance of that, that again, you know, modern day society doesn't necessarily promote. We're, we're, the, the, the promotion is around 
you know, being an individual and how can you be better and how can you get ahead of everyone else? And we lose that sense of community. But again, like with all of these subjects, it's not that clear cut and simple. And you go into the sort of nuances of this in the book talking about if you forge community with other people and you end up feeling really good like it does to be in a group of like-minded people or a place that you feel at home in, whether it's your friendship circles or people that you've connected with because you share the same values as them, it could be religion, whatever it might be. The danger of that, of course, is as soon as you've created some sort of group, there's always going to be outsiders or people with very opposing ideas. So how do we navigate that one? How do we feel a sense of oneness and connection to other people without instantly creating the enemy or, you know, the polar opposite of the other side of the spectrum that's going to be opposing all of our ideas? Yeah, I mean, you know, when we when we think of a group as something that um, has exclusionary boundaries, even if it's a yoga class, right? If you're in the advanced yoga class or the intermediate <laughs> yoga class, yeah. well, I'm sorry if you're a beginner, you're not in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's like as soon as we think in those ways, that, that sort of tribe instinct is there. And, you know, in the it, when whenever we're talking about fear and these other sort of like deeply instinctive ancient technologies, if you like, within us, we have to recognize that that is the that is the baseline. We have options. We can change that. So when you notice yourself really enjoying a community or a group or a, a small tribe, notice also where you've put boundaries up because we will do that naturally if we don't edit. And the, the thing about us and the thing about the species that we are and the possibility, the incredible possibility of the human being is that we get to choose. We just don't choose. Mm. We roll in to it as if it's all just inevitable and that's the way it is. No, we can choose more. Um, we can choose much more than we think we can. Does that also play into what you were saying earlier about authenticity and being as much of yourself as you can be in all situations. Because obviously, if you're integrating into a group and it's starting to feel good, I guess the agency we have is to then look at how much we're choosing to conform to stay in that group because there might be a fear that you'll be rejected. And conforming, I imagine, always comes from a place of fear. And we've got to really encourage individualism and just being you. You can still obviously like connect with other people, but as long as you realise how much you're losing of yourself in the process, is that right? Yeah, and and there's conformity and then there's uniformity, you know, and the the idea that if you don't change a, something, a small thing about yourself, about your way, about your interests, you know, that there will be the rejection at the end of it. You know, you're also missing the possibility that maybe what you bring to the table, your difference, your different view might enrich somebody else in that position of exchange. So it always comes back to that sort of idea of power. If you are so caught up in the fear of rejection, you go in assuming that you're not in the power position or that you've given your power away to join that group in some way because it means so much. Imagine if you could walk into that group feeling, what if there's something about me or about what I care about or who I am that might enrich somebody else? So again, you go in with that idea of exchange. How mm. different. It's so, it's a different feeling, isn't it? And we're, Yeah, it's a different tone. It's a different tone because we're so distracted and 
completely um, overwhelmed by the sense of, am I, it always goes back to, am I good enough? Am I good enough to be in this group? But if we think of it within the framework of exchange, that's some, that's so beautiful. That That's that's relaxing to walk into a group with like, what do I have to offer and what might I learn rather than, am I going to fit in? Am I going to be like, you know, it's just, and it's, it's the same situation, but you're going in with a different thought process, which is so powerful. And a different set of expectations yes. about what will happen. Like when we spend our life in the future, even if it's just half an hour in the future, you know, or, or you know, what will happen tonight kind of future, you have an outcome in mind and it's like, how, how can you give yourself more peace and ease by letting go of some of that outcome? Mm. You know, and, and that's what I mean by surrender. Surrender isn't just those moments where you fall on the floor. <laughs> They're surrender too. But it's, it's just like, what if? What if I can let go of my expectation of this group or that person or what this conversation will bring? So how do you do that around goal setting? Because obviously you've worked with the England team and all these amazing sports personalities and, as I said, you know, huge people that are doing amazing big work in the world. How do you let go of that but still set goals to say we want to win, we want to do well, but without clinging tight to an expectation? Yeah, I mean, goal setting is super important and super relevant in relation to tasks or outcomes, Right. My, my point with this is that we think of our whole life as outcomes, series of outcomes. So, you know, if you're setting a goal, if you're about to go into a golf tournament and you've set a goal about how you want to play and you're focused deeply on the process and, you know, what you do here and what you do there. And every step of that is a, a goal process, goal oriented process. That's fantastic. But then once you step onto the green, you have to let go, mm. not of the process and what you do, but of the expectation about the outcome so there's goals and there's outcomes outcomes we don't control actually I know that's really hard to hear Very. <laughs> because, we, because we orient our whole lives around yeah, it yeah but we what we control is our action and the process and the effort right and the spirit or character that we bring to it we don't ever control the outcome Right. So you let go of that bit and you think, how, how can I bring my particular form of talent or effort or care to this endeavor? And, and the difference between those two things, like the goal is in sport, particularly or any kind of performance, setting the goals and practicing your craft and being as as dedicated and as disciplined as possible around that needed. Brilliant. Love it. However, you don't have to let your mind do the same thing. You know, you don't have to let your sense of sort of, you know, who you are go down the same track. So when you're working with big sports personalities or teams, my, I guess, naive approach to what you would do with the team is that you're there to make sure they win and don't get too scared going in and, and, and doing their best giving it, you know, their all and not being held back by outside judgment, etc. But is part of your job also to help eliminate the fear of losing? Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, I mean, it's a while actually since I've done the sort of direct work with teams and athletes. The time with England was a bit of an anomaly. You know, for, um, I, I was running the um, the department in England and the men's team, it was too 
uh, by the time I started, we just didn't have time before the World Cup to, to find somebody who would do the frontline work. So I did it, which was lucky. But, it, you know, I, I think that there's two things that are very underrated in that kind of performance work. And I wish it was in more kinds of performance work, your field included. Uh, one thing is, I think it's bringing some tenderness mm. into the endeavor. Like if you're going on a big adventure to win something or to you know, give the performance of your life, there needs to be tenderness in there. There needs to be moments of, um, you know, where's the moment where the struggle can be released? Where's the care? And the other thing is the care of the soul. So, you know, when I talk about care of the soul, for me, you've got the mind and the spirit, you know, the, the mind is a crazy thing we're all very familiar with mm. that, that needs driving, not not allowing it to drive you. That's, you know, the control of that, the management of that. The spirit is kind of the zest, the vigor and the sense of adventure that goes into it, right? There's a middleman and the middleman is soul. And soul is that sort of more ordinary, more grounded, more everyday part of us that holds our imagination, holds our possibilities, um, and where we sort of feel that there is place for dark and light. Spirit is usually upward, onward, you know, let's go get it, you know, knock them dead kind of thing. Soul in the middle, I think, is so often missing in performance endeavours. And for me, care of the soul and tenderness. Are, uh, if, I, if I think about all the teams I've worked in and all the athletes or bosses or performers I've worked with, really, if they looked back, it's probably that that, that made the difference yeah. rather than some technique. Mm, and also recognising, like you just said, the light and dark within that space. Because although it's sometimes difficult to um, talk eloquently about what that is and what that means, everyone will have different language they'll use or Feel, things they feel comfortable with, energy, spirit, whatever it is. I've just written about this in my new book and I found it difficult to navigate because I didn't want to exclude anyone because it's something that we can all look at and cultivate like like you do in your work. And it's important to see, yeah, that there's we're not shunning the, the dark bits of our lives or our psyche or, or the world, in fact. We have to sort of embrace both to move forward. How do you encourage people you're working with to nurture their soul or that space in their lives? What can you do to, to help cultivate a, a healthy, vibrant soul if there is such a thing? Soul, I feel, is um, eco, you know, home. So mm. Eco means home. That's what soul brings to mind for me. It's, it's like much more imaginative. And so it can be small gestures of self-care, care for other, care for the planet. You know, it's, it, it orients around that. So it really doesn't have to be grand, like care for my soul will look like two weeks in Mauritius. Well, that would be lovely. But <laughs> if you haven't got time for that yeah. today, what else could it be? You know, mm. and, and, and that kind of recognition of yourself and hearing what your soul's asked for that day, I think is just huge. In athletes, that might be, well, you know, I, I want to do the ritual of wearing that particular pair of shoelaces or I want to just listen to my tunes before I go on. People might look at that and think of it as just controlling the mind, but actually it's inviting something in that is recognising you. Yeah, and seeped in intention because you're yeah, making that... intention, good you're, word. You're whacking the intention behind it, which I, and that's why I've been loving sort of learning about rituals more this year than any other year and, and how to work them into my life, which has been fascinating. And 
one of the things in your book that really struck me and I became slightly obsessed with was this thought, and it is, our greatest fear isn't being inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. And I was like, oh, my God. That's Marianne Williamson. Oh, I, I, I know that feeling. And often... I mistake one for the other and, I, and I'll beat myself up. Oh, I'm not, you know, reaching the, whatever it is, the goals or I'm not as, as smart as I should be or whatever. But I really underestimated that fear of of how powerful I could be. I'm not saying that with ego. That's not what the statement is about. And I know that. Mm-hmm. And it's not just in an achievement-based notion. It's looking at all of life and those human connections and and all of that good stuff and the light that we can use to connect with other people. Why are we so scared to be as magnificent as we could possibly be? Because of the fear of not being good enough and the fear Mm. of rejection, right? You just just described it all um, and, and the conversation we've had so far has described it all, you know. But when we see power as power over Like if you think about being powerful and what comes up for you when you think of being powerful is like bigger than, better than, which is so ingrained in our contemporary ideas about power. And it's that's not power. Right. That's not the only kind of power, you know, to step into your full capability as a human being, your human expression, whether it's creativity, whether it's um, the love you can give, whether it's the joy you can bring, whether it's, you know, the pain you can express. That's power. Right. So so I think we have to see it differently. Mm. It's, you know, and, and be intelligent about the way that you use power, the way that you embrace it or reject it. You know, I think a lot of us reject power because we're worried about being, you know, um, we, we especially, I, I actually really find this very strongly in British culture, don't get above of, above yeah. yourself. And It's horrible, that that thought, isn't it? Yeah, and I think it's deeply rooted in, in shame yeah. and um, fear of not being good enough. Yeah. Um, so, you know, how much time will you spend on those? How much time will you give them? How much energy will you give them? And when you reject or make small your power, you are choosing to allow fear of not being good enough some, you know, more space at your table than maybe it deserves. And that goes back to us really authentically understanding who we are. Because if we really know that and understand it, whatever the outside judgment is won't really touch the sides because we'll go well, I know what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And it makes my heart sing and it makes my soul feel good. And I'm doing it with good intention, so I don't care. But I think you're so right. British culture is so insidiously seeped with that thing of, who do you think you are? And, you know, we can see it playing out constantly in in how the press works. Someone who does well will be celebrated one minute and then they cannot wait to knock them down, especially in sport. We see this all the time. Someone makes the wrong move or, or doesn't score or whatever it is and they're the enemy whereas yesterday they were the hero and it's been so normalised that we're applying that to all of our lives we do play small because we're worried someone's going to go who do you think you are or why are you doing that you know I, I've been on the receiving end of that many times and there are lots of reasons why that might be because I'm female because of what I look like whatever it might be there are, there are so many reasons that over the years people have gone how do you think you have the right to say this? And I'm and I'm really only now feeling comfortable in going, 
look, you can have your opinion. That's absolutely fine. I will probably feel like shit for about a day after I've read those comments, but I'm still going to carry on because this is all I want to do now. And, and but it's if I'm honest, like from reading your book, I sat and I really thought about this subject a lot and how I'm limiting myself because of fear. And one of my big fears, and I can only go on my own experience and my own fears because I know them more intimately than anyone else's, but... I have an acute fear in people misunderstanding me, misinterpreting what I'm saying, or if I am misrepresented publicly. It it makes me want to, like, I'm angry. I want to, like, punch the walls down, but I'm also terrified. Um, I can't even articulate why or pinpoint what that is, but it stops me doing so much. So I've created my own little comfort bubble that I can do this podcast and a few other bits. Well, obviously the whole happy place world that we're creating now, I feel comfortable in because I'm exploring, but I feel safe in that exploration. But stepping outside of that to say do a traditional entertainment TV show that's live, I don't think I could do it because I'm so worried about being misrepresented or people misinterpreting who I am I can't I literally can't put myself in that position anymore because the judgment is so terrifying to me and I don't know what that primary threat is it maybe it goes back to the one you talked about at the start that I will cease to exist because everyone's got me so wrong and then I'm cancelled I don't know can I offer you a different perspective on that please maybe you're just becoming truer maybe you're getting a little bit more authentic because sometimes to be in those roles, in those circumstances where you know that that ugly side of human expression will come at you in a very artificial, plastic way, especially through a screen or a device of some kind, you know, you have to bend yourself right out of shape as a human being to do it. Maybe, Fern, you're just not willing to do that anymore. Yeah, I mean, maybe that maybe that's the case. I think I have focused much too much on the sort of loss of things that I used to do that I feel I can't anymore. But, you know, maybe there is a lot more choice than I'm imagining. I guess the place I'd like to get to is one of choice, where there would be a choice that, oh, I might give that a try this time and see how it feels. I don't feel like I'm anywhere near there. I feel so blindsided by it. There's no way I could put myself in the position where en masse people could throw stones at me because I've had it done so many times and I have felt flawed by it. So, yeah, I think that looking at it from a different angle is very helpful. I I really think that's healthy. I think that's an example of you caring for yourself and you know if if you get to a position where you feel that your your sense of your power your own light is you know greater um, and you're expressing it in more ways maybe there will be chances or choices that you might make at another time but I can't see any rationale for you making them if you imagine that you know the the reality of that scenario is that you will get stones thrown at you that is not a good choice for your psychology that's not a healthy choice you have to bend out of shape it's it would be massively dysfunctional Mm. to do that so I think that that 
experience that you're having right now isn't a failure or a smalling is rational to the max mm. I mean I've I've been very lucky in terms of you know because I had done a career for so long I was able to create something new because I had a bit of a platform and people kind of knew what I was about and and that felt wonderful but there are there are so many people out there now people that I know and love very dearly that bend themselves out of shape and that's such a brilliant way of putting it every day because they're terrified of being at work they're terrified of the people they work with they feel that fear is ubiquitous in the industry they work in but again in the book you say we have more agency to create a culture at work that dismisses fear or at least looks at it in a healthy way how do people go about that if they feel they're drowning in fear at work you know, I say in the book, if you're in a um, a culture that recycles, perpetuates, and um, this one especially uses fear on purpose to motivate, like this this myth that fear is a good performance motivator, and it is a myth. Um, if you're in that environment and you have choice, don't be in that environment. But not everybody has that choice, right? More of us actually do have that choice than we like to admit, and we don't want to step away because it feels like failure rather than feels like an act of health, Mm. you know, an act of self-care or an act of growing up. As I was saying before, like if you really are stepping into yourself, why would you do that? Yeah. You know, um, but there is it's seductive. It's addictive even that, you know, the the sort of small dopamine hits of coping and getting likes when even when the risk of the dislikes are so high, you know, is very, very addictive. And, you know, seeing what it is and making a clear choice for you, you're just a human being, mm. a pretty good one. But, you know, a, a, just a human being like the rest of us. And the humility of living in that, I think, is so freeing. Yeah, I think self-care, we we so often um, feel guilt around self-care. We feel undeserving of self-care. I'm thinking of one of my best mates at the moment who I'm going to order that they listen to this episode of the podcast because they're going through this at the moment, making a decision around work and finding the self-care choice excruciating because they feel they need to put family first um, on, a, on a practical level to some extent but also you know who are they to be making this sort of choice and I think most of us have experienced that in life we think no I have to suffer I have to continue this struggle because I don't deserve any better. Mm. Yeah I, I hear it in all fields I, I think though uh, back to that sort of idea of what agency you have you know whatever the choice is and for your friend that you're talking about you know, if you treat it as a performance to survive, you know, if I think about this in sports terms, if an athlete goes out and they're like, I'm just going to hang on by my fingernails, clench my fists and get through it. I know how to get through it. Right. You actually miss the whole thing. Mm. In fact, you miss a lot of your life. You know, you're you're just performing. You're not living. You're just performing. And that's a really, really high cost to pay. So, you know, with the agency piece, if you don't have the option to leave, if you genuinely don't feel like you have the option to leave, how do you stop performing? How do you become less of a performer and actually be more of a human being expressing their talent, expressing their brilliance? The the sports analogy you were giving a moment ago, I'm just thinking about because like you say, if you go out there and you just want to get to the end result and you miss the whole process... 
I know I do that a lot in my life. I'm racing to find this bit where I feel safe and I'm like, get that done and I'll feel better or get that done and I'll just feel a bit safer there. And I'm constantly looking for this feeling of safety. And I know why, you know, I went through certain things in my life. You know, and you've, we've all been through stuff in our life where we felt completely unsafe. And that is still causing me this bad habit of racing through things and not being in the moment and enjoying it so I can get to like the life draft that's over here where I at last feel safe. And I know cognitively that doesn't exist and I'm not going to find it, but I am still racing through stuff. So how can we stop past experiences and things that have occurred you know, gruesome things, all sorts of people have had awful things happen to them that have been traumatic and have caused some sort of post-traumatic stress or whatever it might be. How do we stop that from just propelling us through life without stopping to actually experience what's going on? You know, in the book, I talk about that in the method of like, see it, face it, replace it. And, you know, we put so much time and energy into sort of tips, tricks, hacks, small changes, right? They, they, they accumulate, but they're not enough, If especially if you've had trauma. And most of us, at some level, because it's so subjective, yeah. have had layers of trauma. You have to be able to really understand what it is for you. And that means seeing it. It means stopping. It means when that uncomfortable feeling or experience comes up, first you notice what the patterning is and sometimes you need help from somebody close or somebody professional to help you see the patterning um, of what's happening. When you see that, then you stay a little bit longer than you might like to. You know, you you just use the language there of rushing and propelling and moving forward because we don't really like that fear feeling or that rejection feeling like we want out of there. But just stay that little bit longer and see how it's playing out and see what it's costing you, right? And it's not just, you don't just look at it as like, oh my God, this is too, this is, you know, a negative list. It's like, I am missing opportunities as in the Marion Williamson um, piece of like, you're missing opportunities to turn your light up or to find something richer and more meaningful for you. And then once you get that picture and it's it's work, it's a, it's time, and it's a worthy, worthy investment to do it, then you can say, how will I replace that? You know, and the ways that you replace it are both in those soulful, small, everyday, localized moments that we were talking about, the craft of life. But it's also then in the changing, you know, the pen is in your hand. It's changing the story that you're in. If you are playing the character of the surviving kid, you're still in that character of the surviving kid, but you're 40. You know, um, how do you want to grow up in your story? You know, how will you use humour and laughter to soothe yourself? You know, how will you use pain to become passion? Yeah. These things are, are what I talk about in the book that are, are ways to start replacing that old way that you had. But I want to reiterate, it's not, you don't read the book or take a short course. You don't read any book and it's done. That's why I talk about it in the small, soulful ways, as well as those like, oh, who am I? Which character am I playing in this story? Yeah, I mean, I think like most of the subjects we cover on this podcast and things that I'm interested in is hard work. And no one wants to hear that, that it's going to involve discipline and um bit of self-inventory and all that stuff that we think, oh, I can't be bothered with this. I haven't got time. I'd rather go and watch a box set or whatever. But it's fruitful. 
And it's the way that we're going to expand, not improve, but get over these hurdles and experience life in a sort of richer, fuller way, I guess. And I think that's what you talk about so articulately in the book and why I've loved it so much. And and I'm just, I'm so fascinated with this subject because it just feels like it's everywhere at the moment. Fear is kind of, we're being bombarded by it. So we need more tools. We need a more open discussion about how to cope with it and deal with it. And to be able to excavate our own lives to see where it's driving us. It, it, it's so fascinating. And I can't thank you enough for not only writing this brilliant book that's, you know, help me out massively and give me so much food for thought I can't tell you but also for for dissecting it further today and um I could talk for about a week with you and I really hope we get the chance to do something again down the line whether it's in this part of happy place or another but um the work you're doing is is utterly game-changing so thank you so much for today no thank you I would love to do that and I, I love the work I love the direction I love the work can't wait to read your new book and um yeah it's it's been wonderful to talk with you Oh, Pippa, God, what an absolute joy to spend time with such a positive and encouraging, brilliantly clever human being. I loved our chat so much. And I really loved how Pippa talked about the importance of community and connectedness as being central to our well-being, because that's exactly what the guys at The Happy Pair were talking about last week, too. If you missed that one, do go back and listen. They were wonderful. It was gorgeous. They've got a fab community of vegetable eating wild swimmers that you can join if you want whether digitally or in real life and you can join us on instagram too you can find us at happy place official we've got loads going on there and hopefully many ways to help you feel connected and part of a community Pippa's book, Fearless, How to Win at Life Without Losing Yourself, is out now and is full of yet more incredible insights. Thank you again to the brilliant Pippa, to the producer Anushka Tate at Rethink Audio, and to you for listening. You are simply wonderful. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.